people before, if, if something seems out of the ordinary, it's not always because I've, I've planned to change it every once in a while. It's because I'm human and get things mixed up. So, uh, if you're not already there, turn to the book of Jude. This second part of the book of Jude is encouraging because it turns from I mean, there's still elements of the idea of warning against false teachers, but now it turns more to this idea of God's sustaining power, our responsibilities as believers, and so forth. So, uh, we will start in verse 17. Your first question there, was Jude quoting a specific scripture passage when he referred to the warning of the apostles about mockers following after their own ungodly lusts? Any passages of scripture that come to mind that you think he might be quoting from the words of the apostles? Okay. And we will get into that in the next question. Okay. Um, all right. Any passages come to mind with regards to that? Okay. What's that? So I think that we would have to say that there is not a specific quotation that matches this verse. That being said, there certainly is the, the consistent testimony of Jesus and the apostles, which raises a couple of things that would be helpful for us to talk about. One is is everything that was the Word of God recorded for us in the Bible? No. So if you allow for New Testament prophets, which I think the book of Acts clearly refers to, what they would have said was God's Word, was true, was binding on the people who heard it, but not all of it was necessarily recorded for future generations for a variety of reasons. That doesn't mean that we've lost or missed out on something important. We've talked about this before. If there was a a gospel of Billy Bob that popped up next year, not that there was anybody in first century Judaism that would have had that name, we would not be missing out because, oh, we've only had the Bible for the past 2,000 years. So we shouldn't take that attitude toward it, but we should also recognize that when they make quotes like this, they're not doing it like footnotes and endnotes like you would do in an academic paper today. So sometimes it's more of a paraphrase or the general idea. And... There were things that were spoken of by Jesus and the apostles that were not necessarily recorded. I mean, John makes this clear. He says, if everything Jesus has said and done was recorded for us, he said, I suppose the world cannot contain the books. It would be far more than what I've written in this brief gospel. So, uh, just wanted to highlight that question, not just for trivia purposes, but just to help us to think about those things and to realize that we can trust God's word that we have in front of us and that even though... Um, we might not see that exact verse. That doesn't mean that he was misquoting or, or misunderstanding what had been said previously. Which leads us into the next one, number two. How would you explain the similarities between verses 17 and 19 and 2 Peter 3, 1 through 4? Maybe someone could read for us the 2 Peter passage. Yes.
Okay. So a lot of similarities between the two passages, some differences. How would we explain those similarities? There are several possibilities, several possible explanations for why they are so closely related. Sure. Okay. Okay. There's, there's three um, kind of common dates given for the book of Jude. One is around AD 45 or so before the Jerusalem Council. The second one is early AD 60s. And then the last one is, well, Jude didn't write it. It was someone, you know, first, second century, you know, a good deal later. The last one's not an option if we understand the historical context of the book. But one of the questions that have sometimes come up for people is, did Peter write first? Did Jude write first? Because then there tends to be these assumptions, well, Jude copied Peter or Peter copied Jude. But I think the answers that you guys gave probably summarize it better, which is they didn't necessarily have to be copying each other so much as they were referring to the same sorts of things that had been said and were widely known. And, you know, although there is perhaps some evidence that Second Peter, because it's longer, and many would believe it was written shortly after Jude, at least several years after Jude, that he wrote later, they're still referring to the same sorts of things. Here are truths that have been spoken by the apostles, by the prophets, by Jesus himself. Pay attention to them, and as Bob pointed out, because this is relevant right here and now. Watch out for this right now. And so um, it can be a little bit of an academic exercise to ask questions like, why is this the same as that? But when it comes to things like the psalm that we looked at uh, a little while back that was basically a quote of a previous psalm with some slight differences, it's helpful to ask ourselves, why is this similar? How is it different from the same sort of account in another part of the Bible? And uh, to see value in both of them. It's not just repeating it because Peter's making the point, here's the nature of their scoffing. And Jude is making the point, here's their general character and how you ought to respond to them. And so they're making related but slightly different points of the same general truth. And so both are valuable in the context of the scriptures. Any other thoughts on that one before we move on to number three? All right, number three. Who are these? These are the ones who, in verse 19, and how are they described? Yeah, so it's the mockers. Uh, we could say even the false teachers because in light of what he said in the first part of his letter. How are they described? What's the nature of their character? 
Okay, divisive. What was the next thing? Worldly. Okay. Okay, selfish. What's that? Devoid of the spirit. All right. Uh, let me ask the kids this. What does it mean to cause divisions? What do you think Jude means when he says these bad people are causing divisions? Where are they causing divisions and what do those divisions look like? Okay, all right. And, and how would they divide the church? Okay. And what from the letter, just broadening it out to anybody, what in the letter were the things that they were saying that were untrue that would create division in the church? back especially to like verse 4 and similar. Okay, denying God. Um, how were they denying God? Right before that. Okay, and um, again, let me ask one of the kids. What was that word licentious? What does that mean? if you remember from a few weeks back. Really? Not lies. We might think that at first. What's, an, what's some other ideas? Licentiousness. So they're denying Jesus, which would mean that they're breaking God's law. So what would licentiousness mean? Okay, okay, we're getting at the, the part of it. Uh, anybody else want to help them out? Okay, so what does a driver's license let you do? It says you have the authority to drive. You can technically drive without one, although I would not recommend it. Um, a driver's license gives you the authority to do it. Licentiousness says you have the authority to sin... What are some of the reasons that people have said, from the perspective of false teachers, that it's okay to sin? Okay. The, Jesus paid for it. Why not do it? You know. I mean that that no, most people wouldn't come out and say it quite that blatantly, but that's the thing in the back of our minds. Um, a common phrase that I used to hear when I was high, in high school was, "It's better to ask forgiveness than permission." Is that true? No. Because if you're doing something that you know is wrong, then it's not better to do something that's wrong simply because you expect that the person later on is going to just be like, oh, it's, it's okay. Because that's not how God treats things. So the thing that was happening with the false teachers was they were dividing the church by, here's a group of people that says, we ought to not live in our sin anymore. And the false teachers are coming along and saying, it doesn't matter, you can live in your sin, God's forgiven you. Would that create divisions in the church? Yeah. One group would be right, and one group would be wrong. Obviously, in some cases, on some issues, it's possible for all the groups to be wrong, but in this case, there was very clearly a right and a wrong, and the false teachers were in the wrong. So they, they caused divisions. How were they worldly-minded? What are some of the things from earlier verses 
that would show us that they were worldly minded. Okay. First <clears throat> John 2 says people who are worldly are characterized by following their own lusts. Good. Yes, Brayden. Okay. And how is flattering people worldly? Okay. Okay. Good. And can Christians um, be like Jesus and flatter people like the world does? No. We're not acting like Christians at that point. We're acting like the world. So that's an example of being worldly-minded. What are some of the other ways that they were worldly-minded? What's that? They were grumbling. Is complaining about things honoring to God or is it reflecting worldliness? Okay. 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 I, so, some of it depends on the context that we're talking about. If you are a boss or if you are part of a team and someone in the team is not doing what they're supposed to do, there is a time and a place for saying this is a problem and it needs to be dealt with. What we often prefer to do rather than actually dealing with the problem, which I think is what you're getting at, Paul, is instead of talking to people who could actually fix the situation, we go talk to other people about how terrible the situation is. We do the same thing potentially with regard to, think about the example of the Israelites. Could Moses put them back in Egypt? No, because God sent them out in the wilderness. So when they complained against Moses, they were complaining against God, and they were complaining about things that Moses couldn't fix for them. Moses couldn't magically create food. Moses couldn't give them water. Instead of complaining, they should have been praying and saying, God, we need these things. God, you've put us here, so how are you going to take care of us? In light of the passage this morning, if God is a God who can provide, then God could certainly take care of his people if he put them in the wilderness. I mean, they kept saying, well, Moses, you dragged us out here so we could die. That doesn't fit with, if God wanted them to die, he would have left them in Egypt, you know? And so when it comes to something like worldly-mindedness, or it can be expressed through grumbling, through complaining. So, let me ask the kids again, just because I know this is something we all struggle with, but it can be particularly a struggle for kids. Can you, or do you ever complain about what your parents are doing? You can nod your heads yes. You're not going to get in trouble. We can be honest here. What are some things that you might what are some things you might complain about? Give me some examples. Come to you in just a second. I want some of the other kids to answer. What are some things you might complain about? Yes. What you have to eat. I, I can't believe my ears. I'm sure I'm sure every time your mom makes something, it's the most amazing thing in the world, and you love it and you can't give her enough hugs and praise and 
and say how amazing it is that she spent all this time making this food for you, right? No. So what would be a right response instead of complaining when you are served some food that you do not like? Yes. Okay. You can say thanks even if you don't love it, right? All right. Has Evan been complaining about his dinner lately? No. <laughs> Jared. Yeah? <laughs> and it's an option we maybe don't suggest enough to, to the to kids. So, uh, Good. So we might complain about food. Could we complain about the way that our parents want us to do something? Like you, you might be convinced. This is one that I remember from when I was a kid. You might be convinced that the best way to fold the towel is the way that you fold the towel. And your mom might be convinced that the towel should be folded a different way because it fits on the shelf better or she likes how it looks when it hangs on the towel rack, if it ever gets on the towel rack, uh, or whatever else. What are some other things that you could complain about? Yes? Okay. All right. And what should we do instead in those circumstances? What's a Bible verse that helps us to have a right response even when we don't want to do what we're supposed to do? Okay, but even one more directly, specifically directed toward kids. What does God tell you you ought to do? Okay, this is right. But I don't want to. But it's right. But I don't like it. But it's right. Part of our, a big part of our lives is realizing there's parts of us that don't line up with what God wants that could be described as worldly-minded. In extreme cases, those who are clearly rejecting God and saying false things and trying to break up the church and all these sorts of things. But in smaller ways, all of us struggle with the same issue of being worldly-minded. And we've got to fight against that with God's help. What does it mean to be devoid of the Spirit? What does devoid mean, first of all? Lacking, without, you don't have it. In what sense were they devoid of the Spirit? What were things that showed they didn't have the Spirit? Okay, they were worldly-minded. Think about the contrast that Paul sets up between the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh. Uh, Galatians 6, for example. What are some of the things that make up the fruit of the Spirit? Peace, joy, love, etc. If you don't have the Spirit, will you be showing those things? No. What will you be showing instead? What are some of the fruits of sin that he describes also in Galatians 6? Anger, bitterness, wrath, doing bad things toward other people. Those are signs that the Spirit is lacking. Now, um, Part of the tension, especially as we get down to verses 21 and 22, is there's this question of, are the people that he says to warn, are they actually Christians or not? And the reality is that there can be people who are Christians who are demonstrating some of these characteristics who do actually know God, 
they just need to, to repent in some significant way of these things. And so sometimes it's easier for us to think, well, if anybody shows any of these bad characteristics, they automatically must not know God and they just need to trust Jesus and that will fix everything. But the reality is sometimes people have trusted Jesus and they are still working through all the after effects of sin and that can take some time. And so we should also recognize there's the possibility for people to know God to be struggling with these kinds of sins. And so as we get to verses 21 and 22, we'll see, uh, 22 and 23, we'll see some of the responses we're supposed to have. Let's move on to the next one, number four. What does Jude tell his audience to do in verses 20 and 21? There's four words we're looking for. Okay? We're supposed to be praying. Waiting, okay. Okay, keep. Building, okay. So, what's the relationship between these four words? Are they all like equally important? Is one more important than the others? How are they related to each other? They are all action words. Is there any difference in the, in, if you look at the words, I want the kids to look at this especially, if you look at the words, is there anything different between those four words? Building, praying, keep, and waiting. Hang on a second. Do they all have the same ending? If not, which one is different? At least you're looking thoughtful. Do you have an answer? No? Okay. Which one is different from the others? Keep. Okay? So if keep is different from the other ones, why might it be different? Braden? Okay, you're getting close. Keep is the main verb in these verses. The other three are, if we want to get technical, they're participles. All that that means is the keep is the main thing and the building, praying, and waiting is the how of the keep. In other words, how do you keep yourself in God's love? Which gets us into question six. How do you keep yourself in God's love? What's that? Okay, good. Uh, what, when it says building yourselves up on your most holy faith, what, is, what does that mean? Yes. Okay. We are talking mainly about the faith part, so he's maybe not focusing quite so much on the doing part. How does our faith grow? How can it be built up? Jared? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
And it certainly would be tied closely to Scripture. Okay? It would be, how does our faith grow? Sometimes through trials. How else? Yes. Okay, through obedience, through trials. So, what's that? Okay, yes, as we understand the gospel and keep being reminded of the, of the gospel. So, there's, a, there's an active part of this. We tend to think... Um, we tend to think faith is something that you just have. Like, you, once you've got it, you've got it, right? But this idea is almost like you're cultivating it, you're building it, you're adding to it, which we then are a little bit wary of or a little bit hesitant about because isn't God the one that does that? Yes, but we ought to have the attitude, remember the guy who comes to Jesus and he says, can you do this for me? And Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, yes, help my unbelief. In other words, I believe in you, but I can believe in you more. Help me to do that. And so I think that's part of what Jude is getting at. And certainly through all those things that we talked about, through God's Word and, and through gathering with God's people and all those kinds of things. What about praying? And what does he mean by praying in the Holy Spirit as opposed to just praying in general? How does praying help us keep in God's love? Okay. If I don't pray, what am I probably thinking about my relationship to God? I'm not close or I don't need Him. You know, those sorts of ideas. Why is it important to be praying in the Holy Spirit? Or what do you think He means by that? And then going on to that last phrase, waiting anxiously. What are, so we're waiting, but then it's described as waiting anxiously. We tend to think of anxiety as a bad thing, but what do you think he's getting at when he says waiting anxiously? You're anticipating. You're looking forward to it. I, I'm, it's not just something that I'm like, you know what, I'm probably going to see my grandparents at Thanksgiving, so I'm kind of thinking about it, but... Um, it's maybe not the most important thing to me at the moment. It's, Jesus could come back tomorrow. Am I, am I ready for him? And when he says the mercy that leads to life, why would we be looking for God's mercy if God has already shown mercy to us in salvation? Okay. And is there a sense in which our faith is proved true when Jesus gathers us to himself? So we're, salvation has aspects of it that are done and finished and certain, and there are other aspects of it that are future and yet to happen, and also certain. And so I think that's part of what we're supposed to be waiting anxiously for. I think there's parallels to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Waiting for Jesus who delivers us from coming wrath is pretty similar to waiting for Jesus whose mercy uh, leads to eternal life. Okay, so how do we keep ourselves in God's love? By doing these three things. Can we then lose God's love to the extent of losing our salvation? Okay. Right. But if you get salvation, can it be taken away simply because you're not doing these things? Or, or how does that all fit together? Okay. 
Yeah. So I, I agree with what I said this morning, but <laughs> I want you to explain how does it work if he says, do these things so that you stay in God's love, but we would say you can't lose God's love in terms of losing your salvation. Why does he then say, keep yourself in God's love? Okay, explain that more. Can a true Christian go their entire life and never do any of the things that he says help us stay in God's love? I think we would argue... Well, I think we'd argue with very limited exceptions. I mean, the thief on the cross might not have had time to think through all of these three phrases. But as, the, as a general rule, true Christians continue in the faith, upheld by God, because by God's help, they're doing the things that God has called them to do, with the end result that they are accepted into God's presence, receiving the mercy that Jesus has promised, not ultimately on their works, because the whole reason they're able to do all of these things is because God is sustaining them, right? So ultimately, God gets the credit for it. But just because God gets the credit for it doesn't mean that I sit back in my lazy boy and wait for stuff to happen, right? And so there's two errors that we tend to fall into. One is... I run around frantically trying to make everything work in my Christian life because it's all up to me. And then the other error is, I just sit there like a bump on a log. If God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. Neither of those is the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is, God is going to do everything He has promised to do. You need to do everything God has told you to do. And those two things work together perfectly so that change is accomplished. Yes? And tying in with what you were praying this morning about God using means, God says, here's what I want to accomplish. And there are many cases where he also says, and here's the way it's going to happen. I'm going to use you, imperfect human being, to take this glorious message of the gospel to the people around you. Could he have set up a different means? Yes, but that's the one he picked. Could God make it that instead of building yourself up, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting anxiously for Jesus, you walk into a room, this Bright, bright light flashes and you're immediately in God's presence. You don't have to go through all that hard work for the rest of your life. Yes. Could he have done that? Yes. Did he do it? No. And so we're tempted to look for shortcuts in a Christian life, but so much of it comes back to these basic kinds of things that are said in slightly different ways all throughout the New Testament. Um, moving on to 22 and 23. Who are the ones who are described as doubting who are being snatched out of the fire and who are having garments polluted by the flesh. What kind of people, what is their spiritual condition? Okay, we might say they're non-believers. Who else might we say they are? 
Okay. No. Well, we could say that. <laughs> um, they are those who are being... Uh, I mean, I think there are some parallels, perhaps, to Jesus' parable of the soils. There is also the practical reality that you and I don't know the condition of someone's heart. And so, some of these people, I, I think we would say at the very least, they're professing believers who seem to be buying into the false teacher's message. Is it possible for a genuine believer to, at some level, accept and at least initially be led astray by a false teacher? Yeah, if they get to the point of being the false teacher, I think we tend to lean towards saying that it's pretty good evidence they don't know Christ. But at least in the early stages, it's possible for us to be deceived. So, then um, what is the... Um, it, so, there's a couple of different views of this. One is that they're just kind of like all lumped together. They're synonymous phrases. The other would be that there's kind of a progression. If there was a progression... What would the progression be in the three descriptions that he gives of these people? Okay. Okay. Why would they need to be snatched out of the fire? And what's the fire that's threatening them? Yeah, I mean, at a, at, a, at a very straightforward response, it would be, if they persist in the false teaching, they're headed for eternal condemnation. And then why is the last one there, uh, what is this thing about hating the garment polluted by the flesh? Talking about they're wearing dirty clothes, don't let it get on you, what is he saying? Okay. Think about what the false teachers were saying. Back in verse 4, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. There's some measure of parallel to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's this idea in verse 10 about them being driven by their instincts. Um, there are people, I think, at the end of verse 23 who are actually behaving in sinful ways because they've bought into what the false teachers are saying. And so if you are going to help someone who's doing that, how can you do it? Yes, do you have a thought or question? When you say don't listen to anything, what do you mean? Okay, good. And if you find someone who has listened to their teachings and is doing sinful things, how do you approach someone like that? Carefully. Okay? I mean, the illustration would be if someone is drowning, do you go right up next to them and like, here's my arm? You've got to like grab them because they're likely to make you start drowning too because they're so panicking. And, and you know, and maybe the person in this... Um, example is not even aware of the danger that they're in, but they're still dangerous to you is the point. So Galatians 6 says this, if you see someone who is sinning, restore that fellow Christian, but do it carefully so that you yourself are not likewise tempted, right? And so this is a, temp a, a, a danger both for helping Christians and for helping unbelievers. 
you try to connect with people who don't know God, it's easy for you to be drawn in to their way of thinking. Um, you try to encourage someone who's a Christian who has bought into some kind of false teaching, there's a danger to you that you could be drawn into it too. So you have to be wary, you have to watch out. So then the, the second part of number eight, how do we apply these responses in the context of our church? How do we, verse 22, have mercy on those who are doubting? Okay. What's our, what's our, what's maybe a common response to someone who's doubting in the context of the church? Okay. Yeah, we just come at them and we're like, I know exactly what you're thinking, I know exactly what's going on in your life, and you just need to straighten up, and why are you even saying those things? Why might they be doubting, though? They could be confused, okay? Like we were talking about in Sunday school. There could be things that, are, that they're believing that are false. There could be things that they're wanting that are wrong. And then the thing that's obvious to us is that it's led, at least by the third stage, into some actions. But while we should be very clear that what they're believing is wrong, what they're wanting is wrong, what they're doing is wrong, if someone is sinning, there's a difference between just sort of wading in and just being like, uh, you know, sometimes people like, well, you know, just need to, you know, smack them on the side of the head and, and, and you know, get their attention and, you know, sort of straighten everything out that way. You can't have the same approach to every situation. And I think for the person who is sort of in that stage of, you know, and this happens a lot when kids hit their teenage years. Do I believe what I believe because I believe it or do I believe what I believe because my parents said it to me, my church said it to me, my school said it to me, whatever. If we approach people in that circumstance carelessly, what can often happen? You say you love God, but you're clearly not loving me in the way that you're approaching this. So, again, be very clear about the truth, but think about how we're approaching it. Why does verse 23 say snatching people out of the fire? I mean, what sort of attitude or, or idea, picture, do you get in your head when you hear that? Okay, what are you saying? Yeah. Okay. How many of you have ever had a campfire? How many of you have ever had little kids try to stick their hand in it or get too close to it? Okay, yeah. And if you see that, are you going to be like, hey, I think you probably shouldn't be close to the fire. It's a little bit dangerous. You know, if you keep hanging out by the fire, it's going to be bad for you. No, if they're falling into the fire, you reach in, grab them by the back of the shirt, pull them out of the fire. We ought to have that same attitude toward people who are um, connected with false teaching and giving into it. And then we talked a little bit already about that last phrase there. So, if we had to summarize what he's saying with regard to these phrases, what's he saying? What should our attitude be, to be toward people who at least outwardly say that they're Christians when we see them sinning? What's that? Okay. Okay, well that, that could be our response, but what should our response be? What were you saying? 
Okay. Sometimes we think, Mike, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Um, we need to um, not assume that someone else is going to deal with it or knows about it. We need to, like Mike was just saying, care for them as family, right? Do you have a thought? Yeah? Good. And are there things that could hurt us just like a fire can hurt us? Like if we believe lies about God, can that hurt us too just as bad as a fire? So if you see someone believing those lies, you want to say, hey, get away from that, right? We want to do it kindly and lovingly. And, um, and so I think that's what, there's a sense of urgency. There's not time to, you know, build a relationship for 15 years or whatever when you see that person falling into danger. Sometimes you say, well, I don't know that person super well, or I feel like I'm not really close to that person. If there is a, and, and don't just jump to assumptions, because sometimes we can assume something is sinful when it's not necessarily. So ask questions and understand the situation. But if it is actually sin, God may have put you there as the one person who is to help that person through that circumstance. What is Jude doing in verses 24 and 25? If we were describing like his action or this, this last little section, what would we call it? Okay, benediction, prayer, something like that. Okay, how do these verses tie into the rest of the letter? Especially thinking about like verse 21. How does verse 24 connect with verse 21? Okay, good. So, keep yourselves in God's love. Now to him who is able to keep you. You see both sides of that working together. Ultimately, it's God upholding us as we obey what he's called us to do. Okay. Um, what do you think Jude means when he talks about standing blameless in his presence with great joy? What is he describing? What time period, what event? What's that? Okay, glorification. So, yes? When Jesus comes, or what's the other possibility? Yeah, when we as Christians die, or when Jesus comes back, we're going to be in His presence. And Jude is praying to God that He is the one who can help us to stand in His presence, blameless, with joy. And so, I mean, that's a, a powerful reminder for us because sometimes we think, well, I'm going to be accepted in God's presence. Even as a Christian, we sometimes think this. I'm going to be accepted in God's presence because think of all these things that I've done. And Jude is reminding us, God's the one that puts you there. God's the one that deserves the glory. And God's the one that's able to help this happen so that you are blameless, without fault. You have great joy. And then that last uh, verse uh, the question I'm trying to get at basically is this. Is he talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Or which persons of the Trinity is he talking about in this last verse? 
Okay. Corey, what do you think? Okay. Yeah, and I was going back and forth on that too because um, I think when we see two of the three, we want to see all of the three, right? Uh, and there are passages where it's very clear all of the three, like um, is it First Peter 1 where it talks about uh, saved through the plan of the Father by the blood of Christ and through the ministry of the Spirit. Um, so that one very clearly is all three. Um, I think that it is also common for, um, if you look at verse 1, who is he, how does he describe there? What does he say there at the second half of verse 1? Okay, so the, the most common that we see, I don't know about most common, I'd have to look at how many times it occurs, but it's very common for it to be God the Father and God the Son, sometimes also God the Spirit. In this context, because he opened his letter, God the Father and God the Son, I'd probably lean towards saying that, but certainly it's not, and, and this is the other tension, just because he says God the Father and God the Son, does that mean God the Spirit is like waiting over here, not involved in it at all? No. There's just sometimes he mentions two of the three, sometimes he mentions one of the three, sometimes he mentions all three persons of the Trinity. And the only way sometimes for us to know which one he's talking about, or at least have a pretty good idea, is just kind of to look through the context of the letter. And um, I, I bring that up because there's passages where people want to see God the Son alongside God the Father because it makes some point about the deity of Christ. But the deity of Christ is, is supported by a number of passages. So all I'm saying is, let's be careful when we're reading a passage like this just to see exactly what it is that he means. And like I said a moment ago, God in his triunity is working in the lives of his people at all times, whether the author highlights one or more persons of the Trinity. And so as we, as we conclude here in the book of Jude, short book, warning against false teachers, fight for the faith, despite false teachers, persevere in faith in the midst of those things. Why can we persevere in faith? Not how, but why? Because God's there. Okay? God will help us. He's the one who's able to keep you from stumbling. And so, we might get stuck in verse 18. There's all these bad people around us and this is a terrible world to live in. We might get stuck in verse 21. I've got to keep myself in God's love and I don't know how I'm going to do that. I mean, I know he says to do these things, but I don't feel like I can do it. Uh, we might get stuck in verses 22 and 23. I have all this responsibility toward other people around me, but he wraps it up and he closes it with, God's the one who's working these things out. Yes, do the things you're supposed to do, but God's the one who's working these things out. Watch out for false teachers. Stay in God's love. God's the one who's going to help you to do both those things and honor Him. Any final thoughts as we wrap up? All right. Let's uh, pray briefly, and then we will sing our closing hymn. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your love to us. We thank you for the fact that you are at work in us. We do not deserve your grace in these ways, and yet you are faithful. 
And this short book reminds us, even alongside the responsibilities that he's given to us toward one another, uh, to also to uphold the truth that you've delivered to us, that you're the one who's sustaining us in all these things. And so, Lord, help that to be our confidence. Help that to encourage us when we feel like we are not uh, doing these things as well as we should. Certainly not that we ever just think that they're light responsibilities and, and don't matter, but also not to just have such a heavy burden because ultimately it is your power that is going to carry these things out that's going to accomplish them, and you have given us the privilege of being part of that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.